0: for future episodes as well. Will I listen to your suggestion? There's only one way to find out. Patreon.com slash Pod. Bye! Welcome to Meet Meet, the show about album retrospectives with the artists who made them. Let's roll! What up, what up, Meepsters? My name is Ryan Rainbro, and today we're living with a pod complex with the Trustkill Records release Fantasy Killer by the band Brothers Keeper. We're joined today by Mike Ski, who you may remember from our Earth Crisis episode on Breathe the Killers. He was a former Roadrunner Records employee via the Blue Grape merchandising arm of the organization and did the artwork for that album. But today we're talking about his band, Brothers Keeper which I was a very big fan of, and this album in particular, Fantasy Killer, their their ultimate release, both ultimate as in sickest and ultimate as in final, because nothing really came out after this, nor did the band really continue much longer after the release of this album. We talk all about that. We talk about the process of getting to this point, developing the record itself and the aftermath, and I think Mike is just a really incredible person. An extremely talented artist, both visually and musically. And it was just a real pleasure to get to pick his brain about this album that I love so much. So without further ado, I take you to that conversation now. Fantasy Killer, 2001. Brothers Keeper, the the grand finale. The last full-length album that Brothers Keeper would put out. And it comes out after you have done uh, some graphic design work with Roadrunner Records, with Blue Grape, rather. And we talked before about you working with Earth Crisis. You do the artwork for Breed the Killers. And then in 2001, my neighbor, Shepard Ferry, he does the artwork for not only Sepultura's Nation that was released on Roadrunner Records, but also Fantasy Killer by Brothers Keeper. So you being a art fan, and, mm-hmm. uh, you know, this is like a street art guy. You seem like a, a street savvy guy.
1: <laughs> I? I like that. I'll take it. It seems
0: like um, that would be a big deal for you to get to work with Shepard Fairey. So can you tell me how that uh, came to be?
1: Yeah, for sure. I mean, so I guess to go back a little bit, I was a fan of Shepard from pretty early on, you know, from his like early work and as someone who grew up like skateboarding and kind of a fan of a lot of the types of bands that he did some of the early iconic stuff for um, i just always looked up to him as like a person who had been responsible for a lot of the art and design for the band i was kind of at a point where i was interested in seeing it through someone else's lens and kind of just wanted to have an idea of the concept of the record but let, let it be designed by somebody else. And when I was thinking of it, I kind of had him in mind, although at the time it seemed like totally unrealistic. Um, but he had done a couple things for some smaller labels and some smaller bands. One, one of them was uh, the guy from Devilhead Records had done some Slayer tribute splits. Um, we had the opportunity to do one with him. For with alongside a walking down, when that came out, I was like, "Holy shit!" dude, like, "How did you get that to happen?" And he he had, I think, gone to maybe gone to Rizzi. or was from Rhode Island, and like knew Shepherd from that era, um, so they had a connection. And I kind of asked him about it and he was like, yeah, you just like reach out? So it was kind of a funny time of like, you know, 2001, like it was early internet, like not as invasive as like it could be now, but in a way maybe more of a like wild west. So I really just kind of like was like, I'm just going to like look on the internet and find his phone number and and fucking call him so i looked up he had a design agency at the time so i looked that up got a number and i literally just called and was like yeah could i speak to shepherd please (laughs) they were like uh yeah who's calling and i was like oh he doesn't know me but um mike from brother's keeper and uh he got on the phone and i took a couple minutes and introduced like the idea of who i was and like that i'm in this hardcore band and I I basically told him, look, I'm a, I'm a graphic designer, but I have this idea and it's like your shit. And I think if I tried to do it, I would just be like copying. So he was like, yeah, I'll do it. And it it did. It took forever, which I can't say shit because I take forever, (laughs) but um, he was super cool about it. We did a lot of back, a little bit of back and forth and did a couple different versions of it. And in the end, he did it. And a lot of people were like, how the fuck did that happen? And it was pretty awesome. And I was really proud of it. He charged us $300, which is like crazy. I guess like as an artist and a designer, I just, I just think he's, he's always done cool things. And when I had the opportunity to meet him a couple of years later, he was very generous and, uh, we were like coming through on tour, and a friend of ours invited us to the studio, which was also like a gallery at the time. And he took uh, some time from his busy day and talked to us, and ended up like letting us like go in the print room and just take a bunch of prints. And they had him; he was like, "Just pick out whatever you want, or internal mail them back to your address." So when I got home, I had a big tube of. Shepherd Fairy Prince is is pretty awesome. I can't I know am I haven't said anything but amazing things about him, but I'm just still like a fan, you know, years later and appreciate that um somebody who would like get to that level would still consider like taking on a project like that. And I struggle and try to continue to do that as a designer, like is still try to be open to you know never being too busy or whatever at a level where you don't think that you could just do something just cause you like it, you know?
0: Yeah, definitely. And that speaks to kind of his like punk rock roots, not to say that, you know, 2001 shepherd fairy is a little bit different than 2022 shepherd fairy, just because, you know, in like, Oh wait, he really like blew up and became this worldwide phenomenon with the hope poster and everything like that. But he's still a yeah. big deal in 2001. I mean, the obey giant stickers are still on every lamp post that I've ever mm-hmm. passed. So uh, yeah, it's really awesome that uh, that he was able to do it. And it sounds like deliberately was trying to cut you a deal. I would imagine that he could have charged you more than $300 even back then.
1: Oh, yeah, for sure. I mean, we were, we were very grateful and he was generous. And yeah, I mean, again, it, since then, yeah, it's like a kind of a totally different thing, but it was a big deal at the time. And, you know, to me, it's still like a kind of like cool, important part of that record, you know?
0: Now, did you already have the idea for Fantasy Killer and the title and kind of the imagery that you wanted to use for this album? Because it does have the whole aesthetic of this record and the merchandise and things like that, promotional materials that go with it do have this very specific look to it. So did you already have that when you went to him? And that's what you're saying, like you kind of it was already a Shepherd Fairy looking thing to you?
1: Yeah, for sure. Totally. Yeah. I mean, like the the idea of this kind of like future past sort of like idea of like taking an event like the assassination of JFK and making it something that happened in a contemporary context and then like almost smashing that up with this kind of big brother like you know dystopian future kind of vibe. It just like speaks to his stuff. Um and I think yeah like uh I knew that it was going to be like a portrait of Lee Harvey Oswald. And like, so that was, that was really like the direction that we gave him. was like Lee Harvey Oswald in your style, put a target on him, <laughs> but, um, you know, even like some of the other, some of the other stuff in the record, it's, it's very like clean, simple design forward stuff. That is a lot different than, what we had done in the past and i'm really proud of how it looks
0: and do you remember at what point you were like we need to use uh threes instead of e's,
1: <laughs> dude uh also the o's are zeros okay it's, my bad it was a sign of the times i still like it it was like um i think our old logo on that package would have looked weird what's
0: funny to me about it is that now it's almost like retro because at the time it would have been kind of like contemporary because elite or whatever t9 was kind of like happening or beginning to happen then but now it's like remember numbers as letters
1: (laughs) yeah for sure
0: what did the title fantasy killer mean for you
1: so that was kind of a thing that we came upon like it sort of started as like um like a like a between friends like colloquial diss to kind of be like see somebody getting kind of hung up on shit or like trying hard or like trying to pass themselves off as something whack or whatever so we used to kind of be like god yo lose the fantasy you know like end the fantasy and then i i guess the record concept became more of like the record as a tool to like destroy that kind of you know ambition to become something that you're not or to see something for what it is instead of you know uh, put on aesthetic or like um you know to just basically cut through bullshit um i mean we had talked a little bit before about like what was happening at the scene in the, the hardcore scene at that time when it was like a very like changing transitional time and you know to give a little bit of like way back context and to sort of understand where the record is in like whatever timeline of the band like you know we we were all like 20 years old or 19 years old when we started the band and like we were in a town where bands didn't play. Like we had to travel to Buffalo, Pittsburgh or Cleveland just to buy records. So our ambition at the time was really just like, we wanted to play hardcore so that we could, you know, be a part of this community It gave us the opportunity to play with other bands from these other cities. And eventually it, you know our, our hometown scene in erie became like really fucking awesome and super strong and it became like a destination and that was really built around the hard work of our local scene you know and i guess it really just like the band became this vehicle for us to to kind of without sounding corny like to see the world you know i was obsessed and absorbed in the idea that we could travel to another state or another city or even another country and meet a kid who was into hardcore and like that knew the songs of our band or knew the lyrics and stuff like that and it was just this international community that i just i think we all just were ambitious to participate in it and From that, like, we're able to leave our small city and build relationships and all this crazy cool stuff and be a part of this narrative. And then, you know, you fast forward like eight, nine years later, we're all like, you know, everyone has endured a lifetime of like young adulthood, you know, like while we were in the band, I went to college and graduated college and took he took a semester off to go to europe and you know we were touring in the summer and on winter breaks and people had job opportunities or like you know boyfriends or, or girlfriends that came and went like we just were like living life as like 20 year old kids so like by the time you fast forward to fantasy killer like a lot of what's happening around us is a little bit more, you know, like we're at this point, we're, we're participating in like a professional music community, you know, like bands are recording with big producers and they're getting signed to big labels and they're like, there's fucking money to be made to, you know? So in a way it was like a, a last Flag in the ground for balancing how to say fuck that while also participating in it and it's like kind of important to build a context for like that time because like we were just like playing in people's living rooms and playing in like by the time we were playing in like small clubs like that was a huge accomplishment we were still like you know we had played in a just like a room behind a building next to a railroad track. Like <laughs> I don't just fucking weird shit, you know, like, so as these things were becoming more serious and these conversations become more about like selling records and we were trying to wrap our heads around it, you know, and, and, and we're also considering, Hey, we've, been doing this this long like where does it go from here and like really we're still like trying to define what we think is important about actual hardcore like the community that we came upon and like how to be the sort of people that introduce it to someone who never knew what it was before and like quickly losing grasp of that you know because it's just like things were exploding around us you know so that what's that's what kind of comes back to the there's like a big ride up in the record like the scene suicide thing and like some people might call that like integrity some people might call it obstinance you know what i mean like and now that we're talking about it as adults in reflecting on something in hindsight we've like You know, we're like, I haven't played in a band in, I don't know, 13 years or whatever. So like those things are less important as far as like, because I'm not active, like now I can effectively be a fan of things, whereas I didn't feel like I could do that as well before. And that took me a while, you know, and that's like um, something that I like about, perspective is the ability to purely enjoy a thing and have and have fun with it
0: you mentioned that you know at this time people are starting to work with bigger name producers and that's even part of like kind of the uh lead up to a record like oh who produced this was there somebody that you know you wanted shepherd ferry to do the artwork you called him up he's doing it is there somebody that you were thinking about maybe wanting to produce it or in your mind would be like a dream situation for that album
1: yeah i mean it it ended up in a way becoming so um at the time you know we were um really hopeful to have brian mcturnan work on it um he was somebody who checked checked a lot of boxes from our perspective as you know still being kind of like a little bit purist at the time where we wanted to work with somebody who could like elevate the recording and like elevate the process of making a record but also like understood like hardcore scene shit we weren't scared to like do interesting things by any means and and we wanted somebody who could like push that and um and so when we we approached Brian and he he agreed to do it he did an awesome job i'm sure he was you know uh it was like a new process for us like to for every other record we had just gone in and we're like we wrote these songs and they plug everything in and we play them and they fucking record them and then at the end they're like you sure you want it to sound like that? And we're like, duh, fucking absolutely. Don't fucking ruin it. But then when we came to Brian, you know, like he was doing like producer shit, like being like, hey, I think you should, you know, cut this part short or make this part longer or sing, you know, change these two lines and move them over here and stuff like that. And, you know, it's like in terms of, Things I've experienced in later music projects since then, like it was very minimal, still felt like very organic and authentic. But, you know, it was like, it was a big deal for us for him to do it because, you know, he had done a lot of bigger records and he still continues to do awesome stuff. And we're like a fan.
0: Fantasy Killer is to me above and away, the best Brothers Keeper album. I mean, it's not even close. It's an album that I love in general, but just in the Brothers Keeper canon, it is the the pinnacle. And a big reason that's so good and a big part of the Brothers Keeper lore, if you will, the the history of the band, is that the band is very uh, divisive and polarizing and identified by your vocals. And on Fantasy Killer, they seem they're still completely new, unique to you. You immediately know it's you when you come on. So it's not like you become a generic hardcore vocalist, but maybe it's because you're more pissed off on this album than you are on the other ones or something, but it, it gets a little bit deeper and it's a little bit more articulate and it's uh, just probably more palpable for the average listener. Do you think that that was a reaction to how much people criticized it before or do you think it was just your voice? You're talking about you were a teenager, you guys are young adults when leading up to this. Like what do you think the cause for that change is? Because there definitely is a
1: change. Yeah, yeah, no, for sure. You know, the f- the first records definitely kind of start like at a at a level that is um, you know, vocally, I guess that's like less offensive. But uh as we went on, we just um I think like some of it was a little bit in our desire to sound different and a little bit fly in the face of what the typical band vocalist sounds like. Like it's always like, Like, and we were trying to kind of like set ourselves apart from that in a way, but also like just playing music in a practice space loud as fuck like not a good PA just everyone turned up and I'm just like blasting it out like blowing it out every time and then not really even knowing what it's going to sound like until we're in the studio and then kind of almost hearing it back in a way that's so shocking that it's kind of fucking awesome to us you know um but not even really like considering how far that would go and by the time it started to become a thing that was like directly associated with you know people's critique of the band we kind of you know to a degree started to lean more into it to be like well if you didn't like it last time like you're definitely not going to fucking like it this time and here it is in you know in hindsight maybe if you're trying to be a successful band that's not a good (laughs) plan I think it to the point of what you said earlier it is still like a thing that was an important part of why we were unique and in a way almost like challenged people to like it and a which is something that I think is like kind of important and fascinating after so many years of still having it come up. When it came close to the time that we were writing that, but we had um, recorded a thing for, um, recorded an EP for Ides of March Records, which was Matt from Shai yeah. Halud. Uh, it was called five hits from hell. It was like all misfits covers. And that was just like a th- thing we just did for fun and didn't really think of it. I um, was like a huge deal as far as like how we sound, but just when we did it, I think it just like in the studio I had to drop my voice. And I remember distinctly maybe a year after it had come out that Chris Bazon, who is our guitar player for a long time and still one of my great friends like he made a comment to me that he that i was his favorite vocalist and that that was the best thing that i had ever recorded and i thought that was so cool i just never forgot it you know and i think that Because that was the last thing we recorded before Fantasy Killer, I just like came into it at that level, mixed with the fact that, like you said, I was just, Fantasy Killer is a fucking pissed record. And I was just kind of like, no longer trying to troll the hardcore world with my vocals anymore. (laughs) I never really made those records to be liked in that way they were more like the content was what was challenging or divisive like to me that is uh, is successful because it's like remember number one it's remembered and number two it's um there is a core of people that i think like love it and still communicate that in the world and to me but like i also know that there's a lot of people who fucking hate it and most of those people who fucking hate it hate it for the reasons why i don't want them to like it and fuck them anyways so like there those are all successful to me is i guess as a as a gauge of how it went
0: what was the first song that you remember writing for this album that became you know because it seems like a very um collective body of work you know all the songs kind of feel like they're a part of an album versus just a collection of songs and uh they all have a very specific vibe to them as far as the sound and everything goes so um i think you were living in new york still at the time when the album was recorded though right
1: yeah no that's um it's interesting i i think it goes it goes a lot to the credit of the guys in the band i think that at that point we had really I mean, it had been for a long time in my mind, as far as like all the touring we had done and stuff like that, but we hadn't released a full length record in years. We had been doing a lot of e p s and benefit stuff and smaller releases. but we just really had i think defined our own sound, and you know a lot of the a lot of the early stuff it's like you know we were aspiring to sound like a our own version of the things that we liked right like measured in proximity a lot of times like we were grew up close to buffalo and you know Snapcase was a band that we all liked and emulated them in a lot of ways and that was the first band that took me on tour as a roadie and that's how i saw the east coast for the first time and like we you know borrowed things from that and then and all our other influences and over time baked them into a thing that I think was unique and was our own sound and again credit to those guys because they wrote those songs while I was like in New York and we were literally sending recordings back and forth and I was like driving back or flying back to you know record demos and you know i remember we went to forward hall which was a you know the kind of like pinnacle eerie hardcore venue at that time they let us use the venue we set up on the stage and just played all the songs and that was the first time that we heard me singing on those songs like together as a band and then went straight to record those demos and i think in a in a weird way like not having played them to death allowed them to be have that that sense of urgency and it's hard to capture that in a recording you know so i think that that's part of what makes the the record sound like that is like the culmination of like having matured as a band and and then also not playing it to death
0: you know this is a time where hardcore is getting bigger and changing in a lot of ways and the way that it's perceived by the world it's actually being socially acceptable and it's going to be in media and things like that even more so in a couple years from now but 2001 it's definitely started that trajectory and so you film what I have to imagine is your first music video and you release (laughs) what I have to imagine is your first like quote-unquote single so that must have been an interesting thing for you doing that was there any sort of conflict there or at this point have you guys decided like okay this might be our one shot at being a part of this bigger resurgence and we need to give it our best go at that. Or are you reluctant to even participate in those kind of things?
1: No, I mean, I I think we were open to doing things that were like interesting or different. And at the time, like making a video, wasn't really a, a thing for a lot of hardcore bands. And like, I think we might have been the first, band on Trustkill to do one and it it was almost like a funny point of contention in you know moving forward with Trustkill on that record was that we wanted enough the two things that we wanted was enough money to record the record with Brian and a little bit left over to make a music video and when i think about it now it's like a fucking pittance (laughs) maybe a thousand dollars on the video and and to the answer your point of like you know it wasn't like nobody thought it was going to be on mtv or anything like that we just thought and it was like before youtube really or anything like that so there wasn't really like necessarily an outlet for it so we just thought it was just a cool thing to make as a band and like we're excited about it and, and I gotta say, like, considering number one, like how little of a budget we had, and number two, having never done anything like that, and then, you know, we ended up working with my our good friend at the time, and he's still a good friend, Doug Spangenberg, who, if you remember from our Roadrunner conversation, uh, introduced me to the guys in Sepultura. He had been dabbling and beginning a career in music video and sort of like that kind of realm of like digital video graphics and stuff like that. So we ended up working with him to make the video really ambitious. I mean, like the first conversation is like, how do we recreate the Kennedy assassination (laughs) is like pretty fucking bold, you know, and it ended up being like, just like a really fun, interesting project. 90% of the budget we spent buying stock historic, like recreated footage of Dealey Plaza. So like there's parts of that that are just like basically like old stock footage. So that was where a big chunk of the money went. Then the second part of it was that I had a friend who I just thought kind of looked like (laughs) Lee Harvey Oswald if presented in black and white (laughs) Um, So yeah, we used my apartment to make it look like Lee Harvey Oswald was leaving his house in the morning, an old looking diner in Jersey city where I lived at the time, just rolled in with cameras, ordered some fries and a coffee and shot that Lee Harvey Oswald getting breakfast. I played do rules as the, whatever you want to call it, the man in black, deep, deep state guy, (laughs) the agent. We also found on Craigslist at the time a guy selling an old car that looked very similar to the limo, <laughs> like this vintage Cadillac or whatever in New Jersey. So we got that guy to let us come to his house, let have us film us sitting in his car, but he wouldn't let us drive it. <laughs> so we could only film the wheel as it was spinning as he drove it back in so it's just like this crazy compilation of us pretending to drive this car and doug doing a really great job of like mixing it in with this old footage and then the last thing that i think is that i remember like a challenge to get to do but also like a really cool part of it was the performance part is us playing in the newspaper place in Erie, the Erie Daily Times, as they're printing the the newspaper for that day, so I had reached out to them like via email. You know, found a person who we could like coordinate it with. They agreed to let us do it. We picked a day. I like went back to Erie. Doug came with, and we like bring all our shit to the thing. Like very, it's like basically like overnight like in the middle of the night when they're printing and it just so happens to accidentally be the day before they announce who's president of the united states the next day like the election results were the night before and they're printing the paper that says like al gore elected president but it's wrong because then bush like wins the electoral vote so we're actually like performing as they're printing the incorrect version of who won the which is fucking crazy.
0: It also matches up with the lyrics, the, you know, just kind of the the fake news narrative. I, I know that that wasn't a term like it was yeah. back then, but you know, the mass media, mass murder buzz of the Yeah, track.
1: no, for sure. I mean, it was a crazy crazy project and again for like, you know, what it is like 20 years later like it I still think it's cool.
0: The song Be an I Shot JFK of which of course I know the song itself the lyrics aren't literally about the assassination of JFK but Lee Harvey Oswald being on the cover that song in particular when you guys write the album and you're doing these jams in that uh in that room you guys knew that like that was the hit that was the song that you wanted to identify the album with.
1: I think so. I mean it it became the first song on the record it just felt right from the demos and stuff like that. And I think like as a standalone song, it kind of still tells a bigger story that the record is like hinting at, you know, I mean, we didn't really think of things in terms of like singles yet. It just like, wasn't really like, it was a, it was made, it was like obviously a thing in like popular music and, Like, the continuum, like, the title track off our first record, like, was by far, every time we ever played, like, the best-received song, you know? But, like, and we put it first on the record and named the record that, but we weren't like, this one's gonna be the hit. (laughs) I don't know, it's like, maybe they don't really think like that yet.
0: give it a name is after that and that song is interesting because it's one of the rare times where there's just a deliberate concentrated like breakdown at the end like this is going to be the mosh part
1: i think there's like there's definitely like brutal parts on that record but yeah i mean i guess to the credit of what you're saying we were never like a mosh band but we weren't like doing it on purpose to like make anything like
0: Poison Plot has Dave and Chris McLean from Stretch Armstrong on that song. So how did that uh, collaboration happen? You guys had just played shows together beforehand and you were a fan of them?
1: Yeah, yeah, for sure. We were longtime friends. Um, Chris and the band had always, like, put on shows for us on tour, played with us when we were down, you know, down in South Carolina. And we also, like hosted them to play shows in Erie. Leading up to that record, we had done a tour together, the Heaven and Hell tour, where we had played uh they they were booked to play Cornerstone and then we were both booked to play Hellfest. Um which is why we named the tour that but it's actually like a funny story that I still associate directly with why those guys were an important band and still like remain friends after all these years which is that um you know for anyone who who isn't familiar cornerstone is like one of the biggest like christian music festivals in the country and at the time um you know by nature of in definition of the thing like all the bands that are playing are christian so we just happened you know to be along on tour with them so we just kind of didn't really plan on playing or anything but we set up merch and our name as far as brothers keeper being like you know not in our minds but for other people could see it as like a bible reference <laughs> we were able to like set up and freely sell merch and not really give a fuck, which was already a cool gesture by the band. But partway through the day they came and they told us, you know, we we really want to give you guys the opportunity to like play your music for this crowd. So we're going to keep our set time what it is and not go over. But we want you guys to play two songs of our set time before we come out which was you know super generous and fucking cool but also like kind of a big deal f- to fly in the face of cornerstone like that and i i know that like as dudes in the world they had had to go to the other bands bef- that were playing after them and like tell them what they were doing and assure them that they weren't cutting into their fucking set time or whatever. And I know that they definitely got a lot of kickback for it, but they let us do it. We came out and it was one of the coolest two songs we've ever played. It was like, I don't know, 5,000 kids under a giant tent outside that like, just were stoked to rock, you know, like, that combined with all these other things they had invited me to come and sing a a verse on uh revolution transmission um so i had you know driven just solo down to south carolina to record that maybe like a year or two before so when it came time to record our record i reached out and not only did they record on the record but they actually like Wrote the lyrics to it, which was like kind of a like kind of a weird experiment that I was like interested in, as far as like giving someone a song, telling them like a thing, and like seeing what they could do. As just like someone who appreciated it, you know. In the context of the record, it's a cool break because they they can both like sing.
0: Yeah. That's really cool too, that it was more of a collaboration than just to like a guest spot or whatever. You guys really were able to collaborate and it's a band that you like too, on top of people you like. So it's not just collaborating with your friends. It's collaborating with an artist you respect.
1: Yeah, for sure. Yeah. And I guess like, like uh guest appearances were like, by no means like interesting, but, uh, or not, not interesting, but they weren't like revolutionary or not like crazy novel or something. But, um, but yeah, now when we're in a day where like collaboration is like a word that gets used as like a thing all the time. Like
0: Yeah, back then they were so infrequent that I, I would I called them hardcore duets.
1: <laughs> that's awesome. <laughs> yeah, that's great.
0: But yeah, now it's more of a kind of a default or a given. Like, okay, what guest appearances do you have on this record? Which isn't a bad thing. I think that's cool. I like when I hear uh different voices and different Sounds getting to come together just back then, like you said, it just wasn't as, but it was rarely like like what you guys are talking about as far as uh just two bands kind of writing a song together, so I think that's really really cool and interesting, especially for that time, so that's uh that's yeah, sick. sick, and even more from South Carolina that you're taking, which I notice is a thing with you Yankees from Pennsylvania <laughs> well, there's a couple of songs on here that kind of speak just to again, everything we've been talking about being in a band, maybe being weathered by that experience despite wanting to desperately still do it. So, you know, you're still artistically inspired by it, but it's wearing down on you real life kind of coming around. And that would be the worst spot in the van Mm -hmm. and also two week notice. Both things are kind of a almost inverses of each other. You know, worst spot in the van is talking about being on tour and it just being like, yo man, I can't believe I'm still on tour. We're still doing this. I love doing it, but I, I'm also in disbelief that I'm still doing it and not in a, <laughs> this, this is amazing kind of way, but like, I can't yeah. believe I'm still doing it versus two week notice is Like I can't imagine doing anything else. I, I, not, I don't want to do this other job when I should be out living my dreams, which you can apply to things that aren't hardcore bands, but are those the emotions you were feeling at that time with those two songs? And do you see them as like bookends of each other? Or are they just independent thoughts?
1: For me specifically, and I think a lot of the other guys in the band at the time, like balancing our love of doing that with like I guess the reality of what it looks like to have like a a career path. And like my whole thing was like whatever that was, it for me personally needed to be something that I was like passionate about, hardcore and playing music and like. I sort of had like a, maybe like a personal thing that I can only again, like acknowledge after years of being away from it, which is that like growing up, having moved a bunch and like growing up in this kind of like rust belt town and like, you know, feeling like misunderstood and all that kind of typical shit that like everybody who is in a punk band says that they did when they were young. Being introduced to punk and like hardcore felt like this very fragile opportunity that, you know, making these specific tiny little choices, like I may not have ever had that opportunity. So I always looked at it like, you know, this kind of like magical thing. And I just want, I guess, like through the band and then later projects that i did as well like maybe even more so once we got past our bullshit worrying about what people think or the politics of 90s hardcore and this and that kind of fucking whatever like like i was content being introduced somebody to hardcore for the first time and i thought like we were like maybe not musically or like vocally palatable in that way but like our message and and our music and aesthetic felt appropriate for that. We had an authenticity and a work ethic that could be trusted to do that. That's kind of where Where Spot in the Van comes in. in Like then that almost becomes a responsibility in and of itself where I Personally, and again, like the other guys in the band felt like we were doing that as a, an unrelenting chore that flew in the face of like, you know, starting our careers or having relationships back home in that sort of tone of voice, you know. But then you balance that with the fact that, again, I had just moved to New York. I was fresh out of art school but also having my dream job balancing where that fit with like continuing to play in a band also experiencing these like nuanced um, it, things that go along with having a job. So yeah, those two songs are kind of like, I guess like dichotomic in that way. Well, going
0: back to you talking about kind of being um, a gateway band into hardcore, for lack of a better word you know, you played shows with other more mainstream bands like Head PE and Orange 9 Millimeter and stuff like that. Uh, do you feel like those crowds were more accepting than maybe the pretense of a hardcore crowd could be to the band because they hadn't heard anything like that and didn't have a mm-hmm. idea of what you were supposed to be? Or do you feel like it was the other way around where they're like, well, this isn't what I'm used to here and it's a little bit too hardcore maybe we should go in the other direction
1: that's great like a a great example of that moment because there was a a tour that we did uh, it was like a headlining tour almost full u.s where we were just like kind of playing with a lot of local bands or being paired up with different bands for a few shows but uh we happened to be playing in salt lake city and our friend sean who used to play in the band Clear, like a straight edge hardcore band from Salt Lake, which featured Nick like,
0: Morris of Eighteen Visions fame.
1: Exactly, and that's that's exactly how we met him before all that stuff too. He had sort of you know was playing in the band, but also was working as a at the local bigger venue as like a booking agent guy, and we were like good fr- like good acquaintances, friends from. Bands and stuff. So we had a show booked in the smaller room, which was in the basement of this bigger club. And that same day, up in the big room, System of a Down was playing. Head PE Static X, System of a Down. He pulled some strings and was like, "You could either play a super shitty show in the basement, or like I'll put you guys like on to open this show." And like I had mentioned, like we're like definitely like open to shit like that, like had no like reason to not want to do it like my whole thing was if i can play if if we could play in front of more kids it's like more of an opportunity to like do the thing that we're talking about you know like we played first not long after doors but all the way up until this including on this tour we would play venues and have to literally like go outside and like be like hey man i'm like drove like i live like all the way across the country and my band's on tour and i promise we're really good like just come inside and watch us like please 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 like trying to get people who are already there to just fucking watch your band is like a thing so like the opportunity to just walk on stage and have like a thousand people just already there excited to see a fucking band and we just come out and like Put your hands in the air, and they fucking put their hands in the air and fucking scream, and it's and it was awesome. And in a weird way, and I think like you know us specifically, like musically, had always a little bit of a like a you know like a like a hip hop cadence in times, and we just kind of (laughs) like played it up, and it like the kids like really liked it. The thing that was most important to me, as an example of why that was cool was that, you know, we would typically play, pull our shit off stage and go sit at the merch booth and just like talk to people. And when we did that, kids were coming up and they're like, holy shit, like you're the guy that was, you, you're you the guys that were just on stage. Right. And we're like, yeah, dude, like we're just here like selling shirts and records and shit. And they're like, dude, that's so fu- cool. Like and they would hang out and talk. And it's like that sort of like what we were used to in the hardcore scene as like the approachability of like, you know, we're the band, but we're also there to see the other bands. And we're like, there's, you know, the, not this like differentiating barrier between us and the people who are at the show. Like they were just like blown away by that. And that was super awesome. And, and I, we were all in the van that night we're like fuck man if we could just do this all the time like let's be that fucking band because it goes back to the same thing i was like well at least we have the opportunity maybe to accidentally turn one of these kids on to a thing you know
0: Proverbial Day has Mike McTernan from Damnation AD, brother of Brian McTurnan. We all know that. Yeah. Who produced the album.
1: Mm-hmm. Nailed it. Was that,
0: was that just a collaboration directly linked to that? Or were you a fan of Damnation AD as well? I know that you knew who Disciple AD was. Did you just get it mixed up when you were going alphabetically?
1: <laughs> That's great. Um, no. So it's crazy because Mike DC in addition to being one of the most brutal vocalists of all time is coincidentally one of the sweetest motherfuckers on the planet and we're still good friends um and now we actually live in the same town which is cool because i get to see him but i had actually met him for the first time i think it was in in 1992 93 i had like gone to I moved to columbus ohio for barely a semester quickly dropped out but while i was there i met some really cool kids and they had a like a, a burgeoning hardcore scene and uh i was playing in a band and we opened for world's collide in columbus ohio and mike dc was their roadie So I met him there and we just like hit it off and kind of over the years stayed in touch and was a a fan of Damnation and was just like in a kind of like circle of homies with him. Thinking of a record as like a package, as like a, a cumulative project, having, you know, the Stretch Armstrong guys and their kind of like sweeter singing as like featured on a song thought it was unique and cool to have someone like, cause I'm like in the middle and then he's like underneath like a fucking dump truck crushing. So I was just like thought that that thought and hope that that would be what it was. And he fucking killed it. I mean, he like comes in and effortlessly sounds like that and it's, fucking terrifying and awesome
0: no that's a that's a really cool way to describe it too with the the dichotomy of the the vocalist guest appearances that you know like you said it's a the the singing of the stretch armstrong guys and even just more the more uplifting tone of that song in general because that's kind of just the vibe that stretch armstrong has they're a positive band and then just the devastation Mm-hmm. Of uh McTernan and Damnation AD and, and the way that, that uh you know that song was very upset as well. You're you're irritated on that one. <laughs>
1: yeah. It's uh comes in low. The ending track,
0: the, the final outro, Runaway Human, opens with a sample.
1: I know how crazy this is gonna sound, but I wanna be abducted by aliens. Why? What are the
0: four?
1: I just want to be taken away some place where
0: What is that sample from?
1: Um that is a collection of clips from various episodes of the X-Files, which is and has always been my favorite show. That song is it's weirdly like one of my favorites because it combines this like thing about Scott's guitar playing matured sound that where it almost just sounds like this like swarm of weird sounds. and i I just I just think it's like a cool example of a thing about the band that I personally liked the way that song starts so to like drench it with some of the samples which is like kind of like a thing now that is like really easy to do but we literally had to like take vhs tapes have a tape recorder and record them off of the thing and then get that on the tape was like a big challenge and brian was super fucking pissed about it (laughs) (laughs) he was like not into it but the song is about you know the idea of someone being so fed up with how fucked up this world is that they would rather just be abducted by aliens and fucking disappear forever i still really liked the era of hardcore where every demo had like you know, like a little clip from a horror movie or whatever. (laughs) Like there's something just kind of like classic about that that I I think is like a little bit ridiculous and became really played out. But then I like the idea of like purposefully doing it again and like, and having it almost be part of the narrative of a little bit more a part of the narrative of the song, you know, like it's almost like to me, like encapsulates the lyrics a little bit you know it says what the song is trying to say literally but without the lyrics having to say it, you know
0: why is someone's gonna die tonight the best brothers keeper
1: song Whew. well it's my personal favorite it's got a hook that fucks you know it's got a A memorable sing-along that anyone who's pissed can be pissed along with. And it's a sentiment that I think people who grew up in a town like that can get behind. The idea that there's just nothing to do.
0: The first time you listen to it, by the time it's over, you can be into it. You you already know what's up to be able to participate, which is something that bands forget a lot about.
1: Ignores trying to overcomplicate like musically a song, and I think that like the idea of writing like a hook or even like a chorus, you know, like we would like anticipate the like. Gang vocal part, but like we still, we were just like understanding what a chorus was. (laughs) If somebody, if someone is ever like, oh, you were in a band, what's your, what was your band? And I have to like give one example of it. That's the song that I like. I'm like, this is the exemplary song of the band.
0: It does all the things that Brothers Keeper does all in the same song and and into the best example of those, those qualities, you know, with the, the catchy hook, the unique vocals, the kind of rappy cadence that you referenced before the, the grooviness to it. Not how people say like groove metal, but like the bounce, I guess, is a
1: better way to put it. Bounce is a good word. Yeah. That's like a stretch Armstrong word too.
0: So after fantasy killer comes out, you know, of course, you don't put out another full-length album after that, and ultimately the band doesn't last much longer. But you do record the Box Office Smash EP, which includes a re-recording of Two Week Notice. So with that, and in that time frame, were you guys still optimistic that maybe you were going to kind of break out uh, of the pack as far as maybe even breaking out of hardcore? Because Box Office Smash is almost more of like a uh, a straight-ahead rock
1: EP? It's fair because that was really like, you know, in a way, like the last shot at a thing and also like a coffin nail in a way for the band. Yeah, I mean, I guess like full on, like I was, I was working as an art director at Blue Grape, which was shared offices at Roadrunner, Carl ferret worked there at the time he was like my one big homie there and like introduced me to a couple people one of the guys that i became like like really tight with was this guy dave basin and he he and i became friends but he also was like you know basically like doing publishing deals for bands and he got a copy of fantasy killer and kind of was like on his own really liked it so there's these few moments that I always remember from like these different music projects and, and this one in particular you know like you know you, you see your band through this lens for so long and then somebody says it back to you through their lens and you're like oh I mean like yeah I guess like I never thought of that and that could I guess that could that could be you know like i don't know and like only in the context of all the things i was talking about before about like sustain balancing being in a band what's the opportunity to make it like a sustainable part of our careers you know what i mean and in this case they you know his idea was like it's like papa roach but cool i was like if you're th- seeing it through the lens of a kid who likes that kind of stuff you're like yeah that's kind of interesting you know and it's like like even like bands like the used and stuff like that was happening where like they were kind of like you know credible old hardcore kids that just like wrote really catchy songs you know and were like in front of this bigger audience and and uh yeah so the idea i guess was let's create an opportunity to record some songs like actually like you know spend some time like writing them demoing like multiple versions of them and work with like an actual like crazy producer like we worked with uh elvis basket who was and this is this is important and why we chose him because he had recorded the demos for system of down and we at brothers keeper as was developing this pretty outspoken like socio political aspect to the band that's like i kind of always like in you know reference like public enemy and like the clash and bands like that inspired me in that way and i thought that combined with this opportunity could be like unique and cool you know and System of a Down to me was a band that had sort of successfully done that because they were a huge band and they were very unique and they also were super fucking political and smart. So we recorded these four songs and I think we probably paid more for those four songs than we paid to record like every other song we ever recorded combined. (laughs) And the idea was like, put it together and like pass it around to some people and see if we could get like a management or a booking agent or a record deal and stuff like that. And it just like, you know, didn't happen, but I think it was also kind of like, you know, we had had some member changes and like all that kind of stuff that in my experience as a person in a band, like that's like the thing that always like killed it. I think those songs are pretty great, but it was never like meant to be like a release.
0: Now there was a song that was written for fantasy killer that ended up not making the album because something happened with the tape of it. Was that song one of the songs that ended up on box office smash or that, that is lost to time.
1: You know, we were recording it like with like reel to reel like tape. And um, at some point in the mixing, the tape snapped and there was no like digital version of it. So Brian had done a really ambitious effort to try to salvage it, but you could still just like, whenever you played it back, there was just this like tiny little like clip in it. It was kind of the weak, like the weakest song. I think it was like a, you know, a sign from the universe that the song sucks and uh, we're going to fucking ruin it. So you don't accidentally release it. So I think it was it was a, a blessing in disguise.
0: No, Brothers Keeper so often identified with with you and your vocal style, but what is something about the music of Brothers Keeper that's very interesting and exciting and unique to you?
1: I mean, we had like a solid lineup for years. And, you know, that's really like what i owe to the sound like the accumulation of the sound and that was like number one like the the sort of like weird guitar work of scott the like tweedly deedly fucking wow crazy shit um that you know like i think is like a a lot of people associate that with Snapcase, and that's where like we were inspired by it. But I think he really like developed it into something like even weirder and more interesting. And like, like I, I used the word angular before and like sort of like disconcerting, which I think is a good way to describe like what I like about it. Using a fucking Coke bottle to like make sounds with his guitar. Like, back then and i i always thought that was really cool chris Bazan, who i mentioned is a a good friend and he lives here nearby and also played together in the akas for a long time i always i was like think he had like this like interesting start in like kind of more like 80s hair metal that like preceded his like hardcore stuff and then was also like the dude in the band who was more into like, um, kind of post-hardcore, like emo, like pre-emo, like emo, like lifetime and stuff like that. And I always think that he kind of brought that sort of less, I guess, like less hardcore, hardcore kid stuff that like made a made it to me like musically a little bit more progressive and interesting than like what you kind of referred to earlier as like just like kind of like a breakdown like mosh band you know um eric who's our bass player for a long time and was like a huge part of the band and like the back end part of you know not only like writing and performing but also like the kind of like more like business part of the band like his just like bass playing was always very serious and reliable and he had like the best fucking bass tone and then on that record we had uh Zach on drums and he was I-, I haven't talked to him in forever but he was always like a super fun awesome dude but you know he wasn't maybe as part of the lineup for as long so it was a uh, you know like a cool part of that time of the band but i do want to mention bob bob williams who was a like our kind of more like original drummer and then also played played our, la, our like final shows together another he also played drums in the akas he's just like uh you know like it's it's interesting because i listen to his bands that he's played on now and he's just like like, but we were in a started playing in a band when we were like kids. So like, he's always been great, but like, he's like a mature musician. And it's just so fucking neat, you know, like as an adult to be like, damn, you know, that's like super fucking impressive, you know, when you start a band, it's less about that shit, you know, like, you're like, oh, if you can just play, (laughs) like, that's really all that it takes you know and we did that just like um inspiring as like a as somebody who played music for a long time but was never really necessarily interested in being good at it
0: what would you do differently with fantasy killer in retrospect
1: uh, um i think that we could have just played on it longer and harder um but i i think it's like a a rabbit hole to go down that like i think like the culmination of all the things that were happening i think we got a little distracted by some of that other like shit you know and like chasing that a little bit and um instead of like touring all summer and touring on the winter breaks and stuff like that where like i'm like have to request time off from work to go on tour and like you know what i mean like shit like that all combined at the same time and like the way that the sort of like rep of the label and the type of music that was associated it was happening like bad timing you know like i look at all that shit like as like amazing chapters in a thing of our cumulative lives you know like with fondness but i also don't look back at it and like put it on a pedestal in the way you know what i mean that is like maybe like unhealthy that i i think like maybe some people tend to do about that era you know so i guess like uh i can both celebrate it but like critique it in a way that feels positive you know like i don't i guess i don't look back and be like we should coulda shoulda woulda done it like fucking this and maybe then blah blah i'm like well i was like you know i think that record's fucking awesome and then it led to a couple other things that led to me starting another band that put out three records or whatever that are like also records that i'm super proud of like they're just like um you know steps along the fucking story you know
0: What is your favorite thing about Fantasy Killer?
1: The overall like message of it like um it's like angular and exciting musically to me in a way that like typifies the band and relates to hardcore but also like defines us as like a thing that I I am proud of as far as being like unique in the hardcore scene and like love it or or hate it you know that was really the start of like um a concerted message as a musician and like an artist you know that is still like a huge part of my life we were doing good things as a band like even back then like you know raising money raising money for you know animal rights and like playing benefit shows and doing things like that but i think that for us as a band and for me personally like the lyric content and the sort of like "fuck you nature to that record is the thing that is like um more timeless to me you know like it still it still holds up like whereas like a recording can sound like it's done 25 years ago and that makes it sound shitty You know, or the artwork on a record before that was stupid or whatever, but like that shit can't like, you know, it's like, I guess for me personally, it's like undiminished by time, you know?
0: thanks so much to mike for his time and patience and telling us all about this album and if you want to keep up with brothers keeper <laughs> you're too late it's over it's done with you should have been there not only that you could have heard this episode early and ad free on Meat Meat Pod patreon patreon.com slash meetmeatpod so you messed up twice but that doesn't mean you can't end the cycle now so go ahead and sign up there right this second really pause me talking right now go sign up come back and listen to the rest of me saying that my name is ryan rainbow this is meep meep and yes that's the best that i can come up with bye